Well, good morning. Welcome to our spring series. Today we're moving from an Old Testament study uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes that we enjoyed last winter to a New Testament study, the book of Philippians. And so we're, we're moving from a study about the futility of life, living in the madness of this world without God, uh, to a study about the joy that comes into our lives when we live our life with God. Uh, and that's what Philippians is all about. As you turn there in your Bible, let me begin with a true story about a woman named Catherine Wolf. Some of you might be familiar with her testimony. Back in 2007, she and her husband were excited for their new baby to be born. But soon after her son James was born, uh, six months later, Catherine had a catastrophic stroke caused by a congenital brain defect that she never knew that she had. So after a 16-hour brain surgery, and after 40 days in the ICU, and after 11 different operations and a year in neuro rehab, she miraculously survived. But her recovery continues to this day. Catherine is confined to a wheelchair, half of her body is paralyzed, and her speech is severely disrupted. Nonetheless, what's amazing to me about her is that her attitude remains so positive. She's so hopeful. She's so upbeat. Catherine maintains this amazing, persevering spirit. In fact, recently she's been traveling the country and the world through speaking events. Um, she's got a couple of best-selling books and uh, speaking at these, uh, leading these Hope Heals family camps for families affected by disability. One of her ministry goals is this. She wants to be about disrupting the myth that joy can only be found in a pain-free life. Disrupting the myth that joy can only be found in a pain-free life. Wow. Friends, can I ask you a question this morning? Do you conceive of joy as something that can only be found in situations in your life that are pain-free? Many people have a kind of seasonal affective disorder when it comes to their spiritual circumstances where they can only find joy when the proverbial sun is shining in their lives. But is there such a thing as an internal spiritual source of joy that can uh, elude and uh, escape most of us that's, but that, that's available in God and in relationship with His Son that's available to us even when it's overcast outside, even when the skies are gray? Or is joy only possible in perfect, comfortable circumstances. And maybe for you this is not an abstract question, but a present reality and struggle. Uh, perhaps you or one of your loved ones suddenly has found yourself in some sort of uh, medical condition or emergency these days, and it's, it's not possible for you to conceive of joy in your life right now. Or maybe you're experiencing marital or relational struggles or trials with your children can we find joy in the midst of those kinds of circumstances? Or maybe you recently lost your job or there's been a change of uh, salary or there's budget cutbacks and suddenly you find yourself middle-aged and unemployed. It's easy to find joy when all is well, when the sky is blue, the sun is shining. But when the proverbial sky turns dark and the rain of adverse circumstances begins to pour... How does God expect us to choose joy in the midst of those kinds of challenging circumstances? The answer to that question, friends, is found in the New Testament book of Philippians. Uh, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's called one of his prison epistles because he writes this letter from prison. In other words, Paul wrote this letter from the proverbial pouring rain. 
But surprisingly, it's commonly known as the book of joy. He mentions joy 14 times in this letter in these four short chapters. But be careful. The joy that he speaks about in this book is not the kind of joy that's found in self-seeking or pleasure or even finding yourself in agreeable circumstances. No, the joy that you're going to find out about in this book is a joy that exists in spite of hardships. It's a joy that exists in spite of difficulties. It's a joy that exists in spite of the rain that often would crush the spirits of most people. Paul is writing to a group of young Christians in Philippi, and the context is that they're afraid. They're afraid because he's been put in prison, and they're wondering if they're next. And he writes this little letter from prison to encourage them, saying, friends, I haven't lost my joy, and neither should you. And that's what makes this book so inspiring. And that's why we're studying this book this spring, so that we too might also be encouraged as we see this path toward joy that Paul shows us in this book. You know how the weatherman says it's going to be bad weather, and sometimes that can put you in a bad mood? Maybe you're watching the news, or you open up the app on your phone, and you see that there's there's rain coming, and you see that the joy is stolen from your life because the weather has turned bad. But what if it's not just about the bad weather? What if it's more about the wrong clothing? In other words, what if you got a raincoat that could handle any kind of weather? Or what, what if you were, were wise and you packed an umbrella with you no matter where you were planning to go and that you made the best of it no matter what the weather does? The book of Philippians is going to offer us an umbrella to prepare us for the rain, to protect us from the elements above that oftentimes will steal our joy, from those things that sometimes uh, allow us to, to lose our cool and to lose our sanctification. And it's going to teach us to have joy no matter what the weather does. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I've simply entitled the first message, How to Choose Joy. Six decisions that will help us learn to dance in the rain. Again, how does God expect us to choose joy in the midst of challenging circumstances? For some of you this morning, life is good, and that's fine. We rejoice with you, but just pay attention to some of these lessons in this series because you might need them someday. Uh, For others of you, uh, life is okay, it's hard, it's manageable. Listen to this. Uh, sermon because tomorrow the rain could come. And then for others of you, like right now today, it is pouring rain in your life. And if you're honest, you, you'd say that you've lost some of your joy. You feel alone. You feel afraid. You, you're beginning to lose your sense of control. I want you to listen to this message today because it's for you. And so before we dive in, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment, thanking you, first of all, for preserving this text 2,000 years so that we might glean your wisdom today. Uh, Lord, many of us come into church on Sunday mornings, perhaps we don't wear our burdens like a banner on our chest, but yet we come with them, and we come to lay them at your feet. Uh, There are many burdens and circumstances that are difficult that I know I'm aware of. We we lift them up to you now. Uh, we're aware that our, our sister Shibby John lost her mom this week. We pray that you'd bless her with comfort from your word. Uh, we're aware of the Edmonds family as they grieve the loss of Walter. We pray that you'd be with Megan and, and glorify your, your name on Saturday as we uh, enjoy his funeral together. Uh, we pray, God, that you continue to be with the Prothero family as Ruth grieves her father. And Lord, for all of us today, we bring different 
griefs and burdens and cares to you, and we pray that you'd meet us today as we look to you in your word. So speak, Lord, for your people are listening. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin this study with verse 1 of Philippians chapter 1. As we see the greeting to this letter, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, the first section here is a bit technical for background, so it's just please bear with me for, for about two minutes. Here what we have is fairly a, a, a fairly typical greeting and a formal letter of correspondence in those days. Notice the recipients. Notice that Paul calls them saints. Literally, the term saints means those who are set apart to be holy. They're destined to be holy through sanctification. Paul uses this term 40 times in his letters. Paul loves this term. His primary term to refer to believers in the body of Christ is not disciples or Christians or friends. It is saints. Are saints a special class of Christians? As some teach, this has caused some confusion because of the way the Roman Catholic Church uses this term. I want you to notice that Paul does not use the term that way. In fact, notice how inclusive Paul is being here. He says it's written to all of the saints. That's because he wants everyone at this church to know that they're a saint. If they have faith in Christ Jesus, they are saints too. The next thing I want you to notice is that they're not saints because of their performance. He says that they are saints in Christ Jesus, not because of their own good works. That phrase, in Christ Jesus, is a favorite phrase of the Apostle Paul. I think of those Russian nesting dolls. You know those dolls where there's one doll inside of another doll, inside of another doll, inside of another doll? That's what Paul is saying, that our position is inside of Christ Jesus. Everything that's true of him is true of us because we are in Christ. The clearest statement about this is found later on in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says this, "...not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith." Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This idea of righteousness is very similar to the idea of holiness or to be saints in chapter 1, verse 1. But notice again, we're righteous because of our faith in Christ. So what Paul is saying here is that he wants to become in his behavior what he already is in Christ. And so the, the recipients of this letter are what they are in Christ. Notice also he writes this letter to the recipients, which includes specifically the overseers and the deacons. These are the two offices that are to be in the leadership of the local church. The overseers, or the elders, are to govern, rule, organize, direct, and lead the church spiritually. And the deacons have a serving office, which comes alongside of the elders to ensure the physical needs of the church will be met so that the overseers or elders can give themselves fully to the spiritual ministries of the church, namely to the Word of God and to prayer. Notice the writer is Paul, who refers to himself, interestingly, by the way, as a servant. The term is doulos. It referred to slaves, or Paul uses this term bondservants. It's all the same word, doulos, in the Greek. He uses this term very often. And the reason is because there's no other metaphor that quite conveys so clearly the total claim of God on a believer's life. Paul is a slave of Christ Jesus, not because he's being oppressed, rather because he knows, number one, he's been bought with a price, and number two... He knows that his life goal is to please Christ, meaning Christ's goals are his goals, meaning God's mission is his mission. He's a servant of Christ. And so Paul finds himself to be responsible to fulfill the command of his master, even when doing so is personally inconvenient for him, and we'll learn about that later on in chapter 1. So what Paul is doing here right in verse 1 is modeling something called servant leadership. 
Did you notice that Paul gives himself the lowly title servant, even though he gives the recipients of this letter their title, saints? And why is that? The reason for that, friends, is the whole purpose of the book of Philippians, is to look not first to your own interests, but first look to the interests of others, to treat others as more important than yourselves. This is also why he mentions Timothy in verse 1. Timothy is a partner with Paul in ministry. We'll learn about him at the end of chapter 2. Timothy is also a model of someone who first looks to the interests of others, not to his own interests. This is the whole point of Philippians. This is the whole point of the example of Jesus Christ found in chapter 2, where this term servant will even be applied to the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus Christ will be our ultimate model of humble servant leadership. We'll talk much more about that throughout the series, but I want you to see right away, right here in verse 1, that 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 introduces the theme for where we're headed in this series. All that is kind of background from verse 1. Now let's dig into the letter for the salutation. Paul says this in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty typical to use the word peace as a greeting in those days. That was not new. It was quite a common Jewish greeting even today. Uh, Jewish people will often greet each other with the word peace or shalom. What's new and unique about this greeting is Paul inserting the term grace here. He inserts the term grace as it's something that's unique, that's brought to us and revealed to us by Jesus Christ, and it separates Christianity from every other religious system. And that leads us to our first choice. If we want to choose joy in the midst of the storm, we need to make this choice to begin. I choose joy when I choose to remember the grace of God. Friends, it all starts here. We suffer from a lack of joy in life when we fail to remember this one astounding reality. It's what we just celebrated last Sunday at Easter. The fact that namely that God in His grace has chosen to give us eternal life because of His love and mercy in spite of our sins. This is the good news. Paul chooses to remember God's grace. Uh, Dr. Trevin Wax said something interesting the other day. He said this, The church faces her biggest challenge not when new errors start to win, but when old truths no longer wow. Can I ask you a question? Have you gotten to the point in your spiritual life where you've grown tired about hearing about the good news and the grace of God? Are you still wowed by the grace of God? This is how Paul can choose to have joy anywhere and everywhere, even in prison, because Paul remembers God's grace. It doesn't matter what's going wrong. He can still be thankful for God's grace, and this is a source of great joy and it will be for us too, brothers and sisters. So Paul remembers God's grace, but I want you to notice also he remembers God's people. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now this is a letter of correspondence, and it was customary to mention a prayer to the gods as part of the greeting in those days. What's different is Paul's not thanking the Roman pantheon of gods like they normally would right here. No, he's thanking his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant-keeping God, the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners. That's the God he chooses to thank, and he's thankful for them every single time he remembers them, which tells you of how close these people were to the Apostle Paul. Think of that. Do you have anybody in your life like that, that every single time you think of them and their friendship, you thank God for them in your life? 
See, Paul is modeling for us, I think, a second key to choosing joy, and it's this. I choose joy when I'm grateful for the people in my life. Because you and I know that if your relationships are strained, life becomes difficult. If you have problems with people, it kills the joy in your life, right? If your relationships are bad, life stinks. Paul takes the time to be grateful for his relationships. So let me ask you, who are the people around you with whom you have a relationship? Do you enjoy the people around you? Now, I don't mean just tolerating them. I don't mean just putting up with them. I'm talking about enjoying them, the people you work with, the people in your family. Be grateful for the people God has given to you. Is there someone in your life that you've been taken for granted? Who is that? Who have you failed to appreciate? When was the last time you wrote a thank you note or bought them some flowers or made that favorite dinner or just gave a kind word? Take time to be grateful for the people in your life. That's how Paul feels about his friends here. He's grateful. He says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. And then he continues in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making, prayer, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. There's that word joy. Now, Philippians is what we call an occasional letter meaning there was an occasion, a reason for Paul writing to them. And the reason is because there was a monetary, a financial gift that the church at Philippi had sent over to the Apostle Paul. We learn about this in chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. It speaks of this financial gift that was given, and Paul is writing the letter back to say thank you. Why is Paul grateful for them? He says, because of your partnership in the gospel. He's full of joy because he has friends who share in his mission. How lonely would he have been without their support? You see, these are not just his friends. They are members on his team. They're his partners. Now, that word partnership is not just like a business partnership. It's the Greek term koinonia, which refers to a deep fellowship. Koinonia. It's a good name for a school, by the way. It's a special kind of fellowship. It's a Greek term that referred to a, a, a deep intimacy that occurs between brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not like just a a social gathering or a church potluck. That's, that's not the kind of partnership we're talking about. We're talking about brothers and sisters who share a common purpose to spread the gospel. And Paul sees their partnership as a very good quality in them. Now, I'm sure that they had qualities that they needed to work on, like me, like all of us, and we'll learn about some of those actually later. But here at the beginning, Paul focuses on the positive. He appreciated the people's loyalty. He says, you've helped me from the first day until now. He focuses on the positive. Now, that's a choice, isn't it? And that's another key, I think, to enjoying life and specifically enjoying the people in your life, which leads us to make another choice. I choose joy when I see the good in other people. I choose joy when I see the good in other people. What do you choose to remember about people? The good experiences or the bad experiences? Maybe you have in the past been hurt by someone and you're still holding on to that hurt then as a result, you can't enjoy them today. Why? Because your focus, is in, your focus is all the way on the bad, all the way on the negative. It's kind of a caricature. But what I'm saying is you can choose what you're going to focus on. Now, I'm not saying that you need to deny the hurt. I'm not saying there's no such thing as boundaries. I'm not saying you need to excuse the, the sin of other people. That's not healthy either. We'll talk about that later in our study. But as a general rule, You can still choose to focus on the good that you see in people and emphasize the strengths of others. Now, I know with some people, that's going to take a lot of creativity on your part. (laughs) 
But you can do it. You can always find something good in another person. They're made in the image of God. So Paul here is grateful for their loyalty. Think about that for you. Who's been loyal to you? Maybe somebody at work, a friend, a husband, wife. Maybe they didn't do anything really spectacular, but time and time again when they had every opportunity to walk out on you, they didn't. They hung in there. When you're going through a crisis or a bankruptcy or a change in careers or a divorce or when you were just being immature, they stayed with you. You ought to appreciate that because they haven't left and they've had plenty of good reasons. Friends, be grateful for the people in your life and focus on the good. To do that, you got to focus on their strengths, not their weaknesses. This is what Paul is saying. Church, I see so much good in you. It's been that way from the first day until today. You've been with me through thick and through thin. Now, when was the first day? That day came about 10 years earlier than the writing of this letter. We find that story back in Acts chapter 16. So allow me to take about three minutes just to remind you of what happened there. Paul founded the church at Philippi in A.D. 52. You might recall Paul and Silas were on a missionary journey. Paul got a vision of a Macedonian man who said, come over here and help us. And he did. This was known as Paul's second missionary journey. His his first stop, bringing the gospel for the first time ever to Europe, was at a riverside where there were some women praying. We're not sure praying to who, but there was a woman there named Lydia a businesswoman, a seller of purple, and Paul tells her about Jesus Christ and the gospel, and she believes. And from that point, Lydia, a godly businesswoman, begins to support financially the Apostle Paul from that day onward and support his mission. From there, Paul and Silas go into the inner city, and they start ministering inside of the town. And there, there's this slave girl that's possessed by a demon living inside of her. And this slave girl is like following Paul and Silas around, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God. These men are servants of the Most High God. And then finally, Paul's like, had enough of this. And Paul commands the demon to come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And not because of his authority, but because of the authority of Jesus Christ. She's exercised. The demon leaves, which is amazing. But what also leaves is her fortune-telling ability. And so her handlers are deprived of their income, and they're all bent out of shape. And so they turn Paul and Silas over to the authorities where they they are then beaten with rods and thrown into jail. Then the story says at midnight, Paul and Silas are in prison and they're choosing to sing hymns to God from prison. I talk about dancing in the rain, right? I mean, Paul could have thrown a big pity party. I know I would have. But instead, he chooses to, to grab his umbrella, to grab his brother Silas, and glorify the Lord together, even in the midst of that trial. Why? Because he didn't expect things to be easy. He knew he was a servant of Jesus Christ, and he knew that his servant cannot be above his master. He knew they persecuted Christ. They're going to persecute him too. Those were his expectations. See, expectations play a big role when it comes to joy. Catherine Wolfe, again, says it well. She says, we need to learn to accept that low-grade sorrow and sadness will always be part of life on earth. Those are the expectations. We live in a fallen world. Remember, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But fear not, I've overcome the world. Paul knew that. And so he found his joy, not in his circumstances, which can change, but in God, which can never change. This is how we find joy when the world lets us down. So can I ask you, can you do that? Would you be willing to 
raise a hallelujah, so to speak, in the middle of your enemies and stop right there in the trial and praise God and find joy right in the middle of that place. That's what Paul chooses to do. Silas and Paul are praising God. The story says then there's an earthquake and actually that opens up the jail doors somehow, but because Paul and Silas have integrity, they choose not to escape. The jailer sees that they're not escaping and because of their faithfulness to God and his law, the jailer becomes convicted that they must really believe what they've been teaching here. And the jailer actually asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? And that's where Paul famously said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he is saved right there on the spot. And his whole household believes and they're all baptized. I encourage you to read the whole story in Acts 16 later on your own time. It's well worth your study. And Paul is modeling for us something really interesting here. Catherine Wolfe speaks to it too. No matter what you're facing, she says this, why don't you choose to be a living survival guide? In the midst of those adverse circumstances, meaning the way that you handle those circumstances through your unique suffering will illuminate the path for somebody else going through their suffering, and this will bring your joy to help them. This is what Paul does in the beginnings of this little church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. From there, Paul continues his mission, and the people of Philippi support him to carry on. And then he writes this letter 10 years later when he finds himself in prison again. This is the first letter we have that's ever been written to a church in Europe. And Paul's thankful for their partnership from the first day until now. This brings him great joy. There's another reason why Paul is joyful, which he mentions next in verse 6. He says this, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here we find this great doctrine of what we call eternal security or the perseverance of the saints, that our salvation, if it's legitimate, cannot be lost, that those who Christ calls, he also justifies, those who he justifies, he also glorifies. This is the golden chain of redemption. It cannot be broken because it's a work of God from beginning to end. If the Spirit begins to do a work in you, he will finish it, and this is a cause for great joy. Aren't you thankful that God finishes what he starts You ever get halfway through a project and then quit on it? I know I have. It's just too difficult or I lose interest. People are great starters, but we are not that great at finishing all the time. People leave unfinished buildings. They leave unfinished books. They leave unfinished projects. I live out in Flemington. On the circle, there's this sign that's supposed to be a sign for Flemington. It's been half finished for three years. This is a big eyesore. People leave unfinished stuff everywhere. God's not like that. Our God always finishes everything he starts. He who began a good work in you will finish it. He doesn't make a bird and give him like half a wing or something. God doesn't like make an unfinished flower. God always finishes what he begins. There's no such thing as an unfinished star. He puts the finishing finishing touches on all that he does, and then he says, it is good. The same, friends, goes for you. God does not give up on you and say, oh, too difficult. That guy's too stubborn. I quit. No, he will finish what he started. This text teaches us something amazing, namely that the Holy Spirit started working in your life and he began a process that one day he will bring to completion. In spite of my hang-ups, in spite of my uh, thick head, in spite of my faults, in spite of my bad decisions, in spite of my sins, he will finish what he began. In spite of everything that's wrong with you, the gospel is that God is going to make a piece of artwork out of you. You are his workmanship and he will finish what he started. Isn't that good news? Amen? Turn to your neighbor and say, it's going to work out okay. You're going to be okay. Yeah, it is. It's okay. But here's the thing. One of the catalysts to growth and sanctification is rain. It's adverse circumstances. It's difficulties. 
That's how we grow, and that's why there's joy even in the midst of the rain. The Bible says one day when you get to heaven, you're going to be just like Jesus Christ. That's the goal. And God will not stop working on you until you reach that goal. God finishes what he starts. What an amazing hope. What an amazing promise. Paul knew that. And that's the next point. I think we need to remember this, not just for ourselves, but with the people around us. I can choose joy when I remember that all people are in process. Be patient with other people. Friends, to enjoy the people in your life, you must allow for their growth. You must allow for their development. A good friend of mine, Joe, who recently passed away this year, used to always say, I'm not the man I could have been. I'm not the man I should have been. But thank God Almighty, I'm not the man I used to be. What was he saying? Joe was saying, hey, listen, I'm not perfect yet. I'm still growing. I'm still changing. That's what we have to remember, not just about other people, but about ourselves and about the whole body of Christ. We are all in process. For those of you married folks, if you want to enjoy your marriage, you've got to learn to enjoy your husband or your wife right now while allowing for their growth and their development. Otherwise, by the time they meet your conditions, you're going to have another condition for them to meet. You've got to learn to enjoy them today, right now. Parents, if you're going to learn to enjoy your kids, you've got to learn to enjoy them in the process while they're growing. There's no such thing as a perfect kid. There's no such thing as a perfect parent either. Amen from the front row? <laughs> and for my single friends, if you're going to enjoy the people around you, your friends or your coworkers, you've got to allow them to be in process too. Listen, if you demand perfection from all the people in your life in order to enjoy them, you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. Nobody's perfect. So think about that. Is there someone in your life who you need to be a little bit more patient with in terms of their process? Maybe somebody at work, maybe your kids, maybe your husband and his progress. Remember Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. People are in process. Paul knew that. Paul goes on to say this in verse 7. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's saying here? Paul's out there working as a missionary, going to prison, getting beaten with rods, working to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're back home in Philippi supporting him, but he says, you share in my joy on the mission field. Whether he's in jail like he is now or he's out doing an apologetics speaking tour, they're all in this together, working as a team with a common purpose. This is the koinonia, the partnership of the gospel. Incidentally, today, if you are giving financially to NBC, you are partnering in the ministry of the gospel right here in New Jersey and beyond. This is a wonderful fellowship that we have as well. We are grateful for your partnership, just as Paul was grateful for his partners, and he misses them. Notice he says this, I hold you in my heart. The Greek word for affection here in this text is the word for, for, for the intestines, like the bowels, which seems a little gross. But back then, they thought this was the seat of the emotions. It was a gut feeling of, of love for other people. Now, this is not a natural kind of love. This is a supernatural kind of love, and that's why Paul says it's not a love that comes from himself. Notice he says it's the affection of Jesus Christ. 
Human love wears out. Have you noticed that? Human love dies on the vine. Human love dries up. The only kind of love that lasts and lasts in spite of the suffering and heartache and difficulty and tough circumstances is God's love, the affection of Jesus Christ living on the inside of us. That's what we need. So if this love is lacking, may I ask you to pray to the Lord Jesus himself to give you his love for others, his love to love even the unlovely, to give you the kind of love that God has, a love from the heart, his love. And this leads us to another key, to choose joy and enjoy your life even in the midst of the rain. I choose joy when I choose to love people from the heart. Rick Warren says, if people are not in your heart, they're going to get on your nerves. I think that's true. (laughs) If you don't have your kids in your heart, they're going to get on your nerves. If you don't have your husband in your heart, that guy's going to get on your nerves. This is what Paul has for them. He has love from the heart. May that be true of us too. Then look at how Paul prays for them, that they too might experience this love. Look at verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a prayer. This is the last key of choosing joy and enjoying the people in your life around you. Even when it's raining, I could choose joy when I choose to pray for the people in my life. And when you say to somebody, I'm going to pray for you, what do you mean? What do you pray? Maybe some of us are good at praying in a crisis, but on a normal basis, what do you pray? Do you just pray, God bless them? I think that's a little bit too general. You could do a little bit better than that. The more specific you are in your prayer, the more specific God will be in his answers to your prayer. So how should we pray? Notice how Paul prays specifically. Let me put up the prayer on the screen again one more time. Look for four things because you can pray these same four things in your prayer life for people too. Notice, first of all, he says, I pray that that your love for one another will, will grow, that it would abound. Like a tidal wave, overflowing with love. I pray that your love would be like that, overflowing to one another. Second, he says, I pray that it would, it would grow in knowledge and in, and, in, and in discernment and in depth of insight. This refers to a spiritual knowledge of God and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to grow in love, you must grow in your knowledge of God who is love and of the gospel which shows God's love for us. He wants them to have knowledge and discernment about what's best so that they're going to They're going to know the right actions to take in any given situation. It means that they'll make wise choices and choose what's excellent, choose what's best. Isn't this a great prayer? Number three, he says, I pray that you would be pure and blameless, that they would do the right thing, live lives of integrity and have a clear conscience. Fourth, and finally, he prays that they would live a life for God's glory, that their good works would result in the praise of God because that's what it's all about. Real joy is found not in pleasant circumstances, but in a life lived for the glory of God. Do you pray for your family and your friends like that? If you do pray for them, that will do at least two things. It will change them, but it will also change you, brothers and sisters, in your attitude toward them. So can I ask you, are you praying for those around you each day? Are you praying for your kids? Are you praying for your husband or wife, your co-workers, your friends, the people of this church? 
I say that because part of the secret to choosing joy and enjoying people and enjoying life is to make prayer a part of your regular habit for others. Commit to praying for them this week. That's how you choose joy. As a church, we want to pray for one another. As a reminder, there is a place for you to submit prayer requests on the connection card in front of you. As a staff, we pray for those requests every single Monday. If we can pray for you, please submit that in the back, and we would love to pray with you. As we kind of wrap up this first section of Philippians chapter 1, I just want you to notice in these first 11 verses how much joy Paul finds available to him simply in the people that God has given in his life. So as we apply this text to our lives, can I ask you, how do you see the people that God has given to you in your life? Do you see them as annoying? Do you see them as irritating? Do do you you see them as, as burdensome, friends? People in your life have been given to you by God as gifts. If you're not understanding and appreciating this gift, then you're just robbing yourself on a great source of joy. People are gifts. Henry Nouwen says it this way. He says, friendship is such a holy gift, but we give it so little attention. Notice that word gift. You know, sometimes on Christmas morning at our house when the kids were younger, it would get a little chaotic. There were all these gifts, and we would try to have them open them one at a time and orderly, politely go around the circle. But somewhere in the middle of Christmas morning, when you have preschoolers, you lose control. It gets chaotic. It's fun. But because of that, sometimes a couple days after Christmas, we would find that we forgot something. We would find a present that was kind of hidden under the tree that was left unopened on Christmas morning. Somehow it got like lost in the wrappings or it just wasn't noticed until we were cleaning up. Sometimes the people in our lives are like that. Amidst all of the other things that we have going on and and the things that we give our attention to, we forget about them. They're like unopened gifts and very valuable gifts at that. What could be more valuable than the people God has placed around you. What I'm saying, and what Paul is saying, is that we should take time to appreciate them, that we should see the best in them, that we should be patient with their progress, that that we should love them from the heart, and that we ought to pray for them because they're gifts from the Lord. Paul knew that. Jesus knew that. And if you know that, it will create joy in your life. And of course, the ultimate example of all of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He found great joy in people. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So what was the joy that was set before him if it wasn't you? You were what was set before him, your salvation, a restored relationship with you, the grace of the gospel that would bring you back into fellowship with God. And friends, when you know the Lord Jesus and you see that Jesus made you his joy, then you can make him your joy. William Vanderhaven said this, joy is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of Christ. And when you have that kind of joy in Christ and joy towards God's people in your life, it shows the work of the gospel in your heart. And he who began a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. 
You'll begin to find joy in the things that bring God joy, like other people. You'll begin to find joy in the gospel of the grace of God. This is why at the center of the letter in chapter 2 is the gospel. This is how we endure all things. This is how Paul could sing hymns at midnight in that Philippian jail cell. This is how we dance in the rain. True joy is the sign that you're really living and experiencing God's wonderful love for you and for others made possible through the gospel. So here's what we learned today about how to choose joy. I choose joy when I remember the grace of God. I choose joy when I'm grateful for the people in my life. I choose joy when I see the good in other people. I choose joy when I remember that people are in process. I choose joy when I choose to love people from the heart. And finally, I choose joy when I choose to pray for the people in my life. Friends, may I ask you a question? How will you choose joy? How will you endure the circumstances that are difficult in your life today, if not this way? When the world sends you rain, I want to encourage you to grab an umbrella and pursue a joy that's available no matter what. And together, we will disrupt the myth that joy can only be found in a pain-free life. And together, we'll learn to dance in the rain. Can you imagine a church full of people, men and women, who really understood this source of unshakable joy? Let's be that church. Can we pray together? God, we ask you that you'd speak to our hearts, not just in this message or in this passage, but in this entire series. Holy Spirit, we invite you to dominate this place and move in our church and sweep through and make us into a joyful people who find their joy in you no matter what. We ask God that you would bless our time and bless our lives as we appreciate the people around us and love people from the heart and find our joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.